I don't know if you've ever felt spiritually stuck. Have you ever felt like there's something in your life, some burden or some spiritual struggle or some sin temptation or, or fleshly weakness that seems so impossible to overcome that you've just sort of given up the hope that anything could ever be different, that God could really do anything in you. John Piper calls that a sense of spiritual fatalism, sort of this is the way it is, this is as much as there will ever be, the spiritual energy I have right now or lack thereof is the way it will always be. Some other people may experience deep pleasure in God, but that's not for me. Some other people may experience victory over sin and temptation, but I clearly don't have the resources for that, and so we just sort of settle into this pattern, this rhythm of where we are. I don't know if you've ever felt like that, but if you have felt like that, I, I believe that the, the message of Peter in the first three verses of 1 Peter chapter 2 uh, could be a, a strong word of encouragement to you. Because we'll learn here that there is real opportunity and real possibility for Christian growth. And that that growth comes through the simple and, and repeated means of the Word of God. As we're walking through the, this letter of Peter to a number of churches in the, the area of Asia Minor, we've seen that he's writing to Christians who are suffering, writing to Christians who find themselves sort of on the fringes of society. They're outcasts, they're rejected, uh, at this point probably not really oppressed in a systematic way by the government, although that will come if you know your church history at all. But at this point, socially speaking, Christians are kind of looked down upon. Christians are thought to be kind of strange. Christians are thought to be uh, that they don't fit in. And I think Christians today find ourselves in a very similar situation, in a culture that is increasingly drifting away from anything resembling the truth of God and his word. And so he's writing to Christians like us who are on the edges, who are, are pushed outward uh, by, because of our faith. And he's encouraging us to find hope in the eternal inheritance that God is storing up for us. And he spent a lot of verses uh, in the first chapter expounding upon the glorious truth of this inheritance that he is guarding for us in heaven. And he's guarding us by his own power through faith to receive this salvation that is to come. And then he turned his attention in verse 13 of chapter 1 to beginning to say, because all these things are true, right? because the gospel of grace has made you new, because God has chosen you for his own, because he is keeping this inheritance for you that is certain to be yours, therefore, be holy. And so he's begun to urge Christians to live holy lives. And of course, holiness is distinctness, uniqueness set apartness just as god is in a class by himself and there is no one to be compared to god so he calls his people who represent him on the earth to stand apart to be distinct from the world and again we're not talking about setting up uh, monasteries and cloisters far away from the world and trying to shield ourselves from the world we're talking about the character of followers of jesus christ and the lives that we live being marked by love. In 
chapter 2, verses 11, verse 11, all the way down through the middle of chapter 4, Peter is going to focus on Christians' relationships to those in the world. But in this section, really starting with chapter 1, verse 13, and going down through chapter 2, verse 10, he is focused on Christians' lives together within the church. And the particular emphasis in this passage is the love of Christians for one another. So last week we looked at chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, where Peter urged Christians that since we have been made clean by the gospel, by trust in Christ, we ought to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He talked about a sincere brotherly love that we should hold for one another. And this is the the sort of distinguishing mark of the church of Jesus Christ. And in today's text, we're only going to look at three verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He's going to give us his strategy, if you will, for how to cultivate Christian love and how to grow in Christian maturity. So I'm going to begin reading. I'm actually going to back up and read starting in verse 22 of verse one, of chapter 1 just to give us the context. But we're going to focus today on chapter 2, 1 through 3. So reading from... Chapter 1, verse 22. You can follow along in your own copy of the scripture. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, then the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The main idea in these three verses is simply this. You need God's word to grow. You need God's word to grow. It could not be more plain, and in a sense it could not be more simple. You might be expecting lengthy or creative, innovative solutions about how to approach your spiritual life. That's not here. We won't find that here. What we find is the absolute essential necessity of a regular diet of God's Word for Christians to grow. Let's walk through these verses and and see how they unfold that idea and what we might come away with. The first word, so. We're going to pause right there and talk about so. Because what does that mean? You've got to look back at what came before it to find out what he's referring to. Because so means in light of this. Right? Therefore, put away. All right? So what is he referring to in the so? Well, most immediately in the context is the command to love one another and the grounding truth that we've been born again by the imperishable seed of God's word. That's what came right before this. Love one another 
since you have been born, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And then he went on quoting this verse from Isaiah to expound upon the eternal, unbreakable nature of the word of God. So since you've been born again by this imperishable, eternal seed of the word, therefore, on we go into his exhortation. Since we've been saved through the gospel for the purpose of Christian love, remember, for a sincere brotherly love, and since you've been born again by the imperishable, living and abiding and eternal word of God, so put away. And then we get this list of sins, this list of vices, as it were. And so what we have in mind as we look to these exhortations to come is the truth. Not only that we've been called to love one another, but that we have been given new life by the eternal word of God. We have been given new life. So it's a little bit like this. Since you are new, therefore, and then he's going to expound on some things that all kind of sum up to live out your newness. Since you are new, live new is maybe what something, a way we might summarize it. So then he goes on to say, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now, the ESV gives this put away. Uh, It's a participle, and they give it the force of a command, put away all malice. Really, it's probably better to take it as uh, as a a description, a manner in which an action is to be carried out, um, as an adverb for any grammar nerds out there. Um, And so, because the main exhortation comes in verse 2, which is long for the pure spiritual milk. We'll come to that. So really, what he's saying here is putting away all malice and envy, etc. Carry out this action of longing for pure spiritual milk. It's, it's better to take that as, as a putting aside, in the manner of putting aside. And I think that conveys to us that this putting away is not a one-time only event. When we come to faith in Christ the first time, chuck all that aside and now we're scot-free. I don't think that's the picture that we have anywhere in the New Testament and I don't think the language here conveys that. This is a daily, repeated putting aside. It gives the imagery of, of taking off a garment and putting it down. Similarly to Hebrews chapter 12 where he tells us, uh, where the author tells us to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles. It's the same kind of language here of, of taking things that get in the way of Christian love and Christian maturity and putting them off. And that has to happen over and over again, not just one time. I don't know if you've had that experience where I thought I dealt with this thing, right? I thought I dealt with that anger. I thought I dealt with that unforgiveness. And yet here it is creeping up again because we have this indwelling enemy in our flesh. So we have to consistently put it aside. We have to repeatedly renounce sinful behaviors. All right, so what is he calling us to put away? He gives us this list of five sins. And I don't think they're just random things. Like he's not just pulling about out of the air some bad stuff that he can think of that somebody might do. There's a particular shape to these sins and a, and a, a function, if you will, or an effect of these sins uh, in the life of a church. So let's look at these kind of one at a time. First of all, malice. He says, put aside all malice. Malice is basically ill will. That is the desire to do harm to somebody. 
And that sounds a little extreme. I don't know that I really desire to hurt people. But if you think that the harm is not necessarily a physical harm, we're not talking about only, you know, like murder or something or beating somebody up. We can do harm to somebody with hateful words. We can do harm to somebody by withholding good from them that we know we could do. We could do harm to somebody in all kinds of ways. And malice here is not an action, it's a heart. It's a posture of heart that desires to do harm to another. Put aside all malice. And then I think that it's kind of an umbrella term for the other sins, the specific sins that are going to follow. So I think the other four sins he lists here fall under the umbrella of this malicious intent, this desire to do harm. And I see them in pairs. Deceit and hypocrisy work very closely together. Deceit is basically dishonesty, manipulation, a desire or an intent to trick somebody. Right? We understand that. You could deceive somebody about all kinds of things. Deceit uh, could, could come in all kinds of forms. But I think that the, the deceit that's in view here has to do very closely with the hypocrisy that follows it. Hypocrisy is literally acting under a feigned part. In other words, it's pretending. Hypocrisy is, I'm not going to show the truth. I want you to see something different. Um, John Piper calls this a species of deceit. So hypocrisy as some, a particular form of deceit. So it, if, think about it this way. Deceit and hypocrisy work together kind of like this. I am ashamed of who I am, and so I want to deceive you about the real me. And so I wear a mask, right? I, I don't want you to know me for who I am, so I cover it up. So the deceit and the hypocrisy go hand in hand within the life of the church when we're not willing to be honest with each other about who we are and about the ways that we struggle because we're ashamed. And so I want to put on a happy face or I want to look like I'm way more together than I really am. And when you couch it in those terms, it makes a lot more sense why Christians might struggle with this. And maybe you've seen it in your own heart or you've recognized it in others where you think, I'm not sure I'm getting an accurate picture of who this person is. Deceit and hypocrisy. It's a self-protective mechanism to keep others kind of at arm's length. I don't want you to see who I really am. The next two are envy and slander. So envy is a sense of, a sort of competition, right? Like one-upmanship. So not only, to state it sort of negatively, not only do I grieve my own failures, like in my kind of desire to deceive and, and, and uh, be a hypocrite, not only do I grieve my own failures, failures, I also resent your successes, right? So when I see, for example, somebody else in the church succeeding in something where I have failed or growing in a way where I feel frustrated or being recognized for something that I have felt underappreciated in, then I'm envying, I'm resenting your success. I wish the good things in your life would happen to me instead, right? So instead of celebrating the successes and the victories and the grace in someone else's life, I'm now resenting you for that because I wish it were happening to me. That's envy. 
in this context. And slander is maybe a way that that envy can spill out in our words. Slander is the most probably active of these, of these particular verbs, these particular sins that Peter points us to. Slander is simply to speak ill of someone. It really is that simple. And envy might be the root of slander because as I begrudge your growth or reputation or success, I might attempt to undermine them by coloring others' opinion about you by speaking ill of you, right? It's kind of commonly known that one of the key ways that people tend to try to make themselves feel better is by bringing the people around them down, right? If I can cast a shadow on your opinion of someone over here, makes me feel just a little bit better about myself, right? I look just a little bit better. And so in my envy of others within the church community, I begin to maybe speak little words here and there, plant seeds of doubt or suspicion or negative opinion of somebody that cast a shadow on another's character or another's life, trying to sort of bring this person down so we're on a level playing field. So what is a common thread among these sins, this malice that desires to harm someone, the deceit and hypocrisy that keep us from being real with each other and kind of wearing this mask, and the envy and slander that lead us to sort of try to get a leg up on one another instead of, as the scripture says, prefer one another in honor. The common thread that I see among these vices is that they are all relational sins. They are community-destroying patterns of the heart. And that's, of course, what Peter has in mind in this immediate context. He's just given us a strong exhortation. Since you have been saved for the purpose of a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So in a way, this list of vices in chapter 2, verse 1, is sort of uh, the, the embodied opposite of a sincere brotherly love. The kind of love that he's calling the church to is expressed in the negative through this list of vices. And it's, if you think about it, even the words correspond to one another pretty well. Sincere, earnest, pure, brotherly love, malice, envy, deceit, hypocrisy, slander. They, they really work against one another. It's one or the other. If you, to the extent that a church community has these vices, these sins present, love is being starved. Love is being destroyed. So how will we leave these things behind? Right? He's exhorting us here. Now putting aside all of these community-destroying sins. Well, boy, that sounds awfully simple, doesn't it? How does he have in mind for us to do this? These sin, uh, these love-destroying corruptions are innate to our fallen humanity. They're deep down in there. I don't necessarily go looking for them. How can I be more jealous of somebody today? How can I speak a word that's going to hurt someone's feelings? That's not usually how we think about it. It just creeps up. It's deep down there. So what is the strategy that Peter is going to give Christians to put these things aside? Well, let's get our minds around his strategy in verse 2. And then we're going to circle back around to this list of vices and see how exactly this strategy in verse 2 provides a remedy 
a remedy to these particular sins. Okay, so we're going to bookmark this list of sins, community sins, and come back to it to see how this central exhortation in verse 2 will answer those problems. So here's his exhortation. Look in verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. And I want you to notice one thing up front. The command here is to desire something. He doesn't say, like newborn infants, read the Bible a lot. It's not an action. It's a desire. The command is long for the pure spiritual milk. So we're dealing in the realm of the heart. We're dealing in the realm of our affections and of our desires. And so we know right away we're kind of already outside of the realm of our own sort of active control in some ways, right? If you desire something, you didn't usually decide to desire it. It was just there. And if you don't desire something, you probably didn't think to yourself, I want to not desire it. You just didn't care about it. So we're dealing with something already that's a bit outside the realm of just make a decision and make it happen. We're talking about the longing of the heart. And Peter commands us here, long for the pure spiritual milk. So he uses this analogy of of newborn infants. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. And I think the picture he's he's giving us here is of desperation, dependence, an earnestness or intensity of desire. Anybody who's ever had a baby, raised a baby, been around a baby can see how strong the desire for milk is. It conquers everything else. Nothing must get in the way of the baby and the milk. He's going to wake up at three in the morning needing milk. In fact, you're probably, as a parent, going to kind of organize your schedule around when you're going to have to feed the baby because he must have his milk, right? It is a desperate longing. And it is a physical dependence. It is a need. It's not just that the baby really would like to have some milk. It's that if the baby doesn't get the milk, he will starve. It is need and it is strong desire. It is craving. And this infant and milk analogy picks up the same image that Peter used at the end of chapter 1 about being born again by the seed of the Word of God. Since you've been born anew, therefore, like newborn infants, long for the milk that's going to sustain you, the milk that's going to feed you. I don't think that there's any sense of rebuke intended here. There are a few other places in the New Testament. uh, Paul uh, Paul does this. The author of Hebrews does this, where the drinking of milk is sort of like as opposed to eating meat, right? So like the author of Hebrews says, you know, you should be able to eat meat by now, but you still require milk. And so in that context, it's like it's a rebuke. It's like you've not grown up in your faith and you still need these basic little sort of bite-sized pieces of truth. That's not at all what Peter is conveying here. There's no sense in which the longing for milk is a negative thing. In fact, he's just pointing out to us really a way in which all Christians should be like newborn babies. No matter how long you've been a Christian, the way that you will grow, the way that you feed yourself is by this pure spiritual milk. Long for it, crave it, desire it. So the obvious question is, what is it? 
What is the pure spiritual milk? Broadly speaking, it's the Word of God. Broadly speaking, you could say this about the entirety of God's Word. He's just gone through this, uh, this expression of, of the imperishable, living, and abiding Word of God and quoting Isaiah to say that everything else passes away, people pass away, grass passes away, the earth will pass away, but the Word of God stands forever, right? And so then when he says, long for the pure spiritual milk... I think we could say that he's referring to all of God's word, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what Jesus said to Satan, right? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So this pure spiritual milk could be seen broadly as all of the word. We were born again by the seed of the word, and that word is imperishable and remains forever. In fact, the, lang- the word here that's translated in the ESV as spiritual, the pure spiritual milk, is the Greek logikon, which is related to logos, which is word. can be message. Sometimes it's, it has the sense of like reason. So the, the logikon milk is, it's, some translations see spiritual here, but the, the point is it's connected to, it, it, to a reasonableness. It's connected to the word, the message of God. And I think Peter uses the word to immediately summon thoughts in his readers, the original readers who would have seen the Greek word and not the English word spiritual. They would have seen the word logikon and immediately had thoughts of the word of God which he's just told us is the seed by which Christians have been begotten by him. So broadly, the pure spiritual milk is the word of God. But I think there's a way in which Peter's driving at something even more specific within the word. And that's this, the goodness of God in the gospel. The goodness of God in the gospel. Look down at verse 3. We'll come back to this statement at the end, but I just want you to see this phrase where he says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And I don't think it's an accident that he's got the language of tasting right next to the command to long for milk. You've been born again by the eternal seed of God's word. You should long for to be fed by the milk of God's word. And in particular, the taste that we receive in God's word is the goodness of God. I point you also to the end of verse 25 of chapter 1 after he's quoted Isaiah, the word of the Lord remains forever. Then he gives his own commentary. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. In other words, the message that sinners can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. So as we come to the Word, we see and experience the goodness, the kindness, the mercy of God in this gospel message. What we have tasted in the Word is His goodness, His love, His patience, His forgiveness. His kindness. And the goodness of God that we taste in the gospel, we are to drink deeply of in the spiritual milk of his word day by day. I think that's what he's after here. Long for the pure spiritual milk whereby we will get a taste 
repeated tastes and enjoyment of the goodness and kindness and mercy and beauty of God himself in the gospel. Long for the pure spiritual milk, the milk of God's word, and specifically the milk of the taste of God's goodness as we find him in the gospel. So with that in mind, if that's what the, the, the milk is and the longing for spiritual milk, and that's his strategy, right? He says, putting away all these sins, malice, envy, deceit, etc. Long for the pure spiritual milk. So this strategy somehow answers the specific sins that he talked about in verse 1. Well, let's, let's see how that works out. Let's take this, uh, this strategy of longing for and being fed on the word of God and let's apply it to those sins in verse 1 and see uh, how the goodness of God and his word might starve the community-destroying sins we see there. First one was malice. What does God's word tell me about the people in my church? He loves them. He chose them. He sent his son to die for them. If this is God's heart toward his people, how could I possibly desire their harm? If I love God, I will love his people. So as I read God's word and I see what's true about his love for sinners and his building of a new people, which we're going to get into in more detail next week in verses 4 through 10, as we see the heart of God for his people, it, it undermines that innate heart desire to do harm to someone, particularly someone in the household of faith, another Christian, another member of your own church, right? As we read God's word and we see his heart for his people, we come to have the same heart. We must love what God loves. What about deceit and hypocrisy? Remember, in this relationship here, I'm attempting to deceive you. I'm not confessing this. I'm just giving the analogy here, right? I'm attempting to deceive you by acting like I'm someone I'm not because I'm ashamed of who I really am, right? I'm ashamed of my sins and failures and I need you to think I'm more together than I really am. So what does the milk of the word tell me? How does the milk of the word answer this need? It tells me that even while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. It tells me that I've been adopted as a child of God. It tells me that he's guarding me through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, which Peter just told us about a few verses ago. It tells me he accepts me, welcomes me, forgives all my sins and failures. In light of the goodness of God to me in the gospel, I don't need you to think I've got it all together, right? The deceit and the hypocrisy that comes so naturally from that fear of rejection or fear of being misunderstood or fear of maybe even worse, actually being understood for who I really am and the weaknesses I really have. It gets starved when we feed ourselves on the goodness of God in the gospel. The gospel frees us to be real with each other about our sins and struggles because it reminds us that they don't tell the whole story. So I don't need to trick you. The need for deceit and hypocrisy evaporates when I begin to understand who I really am in Christ. That's the milk of the word. As the milk of the word feeds me and reminds me and tells me who I am because of the love of God for me in Christ Jesus, 
the need to trick people, the need to pretend evaporates. It's starved. What about envy and slander? Right? When I envy you in this context, I'm begrudging you the growth and holiness evident in your life. And I say bad stuff about you because it makes me feel better about myself. Right? That's what's going on in the relationship between envy and slander. But if the gospel is true, the need to bring you down is destroyed by the very same realities that remind me that the most important acceptance I need is already granted to me by God's grace. As we soak in God's word, as we feed on God's word, the truths of the gospel, the goodness of God to us in Christ, all of these needs, these sinful inclinations of self-protection and preservation and pretending and keeping people at arm's length and bringing other people down, it just goes away. It gets starved if we are feeding ourselves on the spiritual milk of the Word of God. I think that's how Peter intends us to see this relationship. It's not random sins. These are community-destroying sins, and here is how the goodness of God in the gospel can starve those sins and thereby cultivate the kind of sincere brotherly love he is calling us to. Let me ask you, how well did you love others this week? How successful have you been at fighting against these community-destroying sins and at embodying sincere brotherly love towards fellow Christians and others around you? Another question. How much did you depend on God's word this week? How much did you allow your soul to feed on the goodness of God and the gospel? Those are not unrelated questions. If your answers are, I didn't love others very well, and I didn't spend much time in God's word, it's not unrelated. The connection between our dependence on God's word and our success or failure at loving others is organic and unbreakable. Our time in and devotion to and feeding from the word of God will have a direct effect on how well we love the people around us. Those are hard questions to ask because often the answers aren't very uh, flattering. Sometimes if we're honest with ourselves, we go, yeah, I didn't do too hot at that. I'm not really uh, hitting the mark there. But rather than that leading us into despair and hiding and pretending, let's fall back on the grace of God and the gospel. We don't need to pretend. We could even admit to one another, man, I failed to love you this week. I'm really sorry about that. I did not depend on God and his word, and that came out in sinful thoughts and inclinations and desires that hurt you or hurt others. Let's rest in the grace of the gospel. And let's purpose in our hearts to taste the goodness of God in his word this week. Right? Set aside time for it. Make a game plan. Tell a spouse or a parent or a friend what you intend to do to get the milk of God's word into your soul this week. We need it. Well, how badly do we need it? Peter's going to tell us. 
What's the purpose, the bigger, broader purpose of this feeding of our souls with the milk of God's word? Look at the second half of verse 2. Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. That, so that, in order that, right? The purpose of and with the result that we might grow up into salvation. So drinking deeply of the goodness of God and his word is Peter's strategy for starving the community destroying sins in verse 1. And here in the second part of verse 2, he gets even bigger. He sets his sights even higher regarding the effect of God's word upon our souls. Namely, that by feeding upon God's word, we might grow up into salvation. Let's talk about that phrase, growing up into salvation. I think that the salvation that he has in view here is the same as what he's had in view throughout the early part of this letter. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, he said that uh, our inheritance is kept in heaven who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's a future grace. That's a salvation that's to come. He says again down in verse 9, after saying that we, we don't see him, but we love him and we rejoice with inexpressible joy. Verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's a future salvation. The outcome of the lives of faith we live now is salvation, future, final salvation. Same thing again in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the future. When Christ returns and his grace, the completing grace of salvation comes to you. It is future, final salvation. It's, if you will, a completed experience of God's grace at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Peter has in his mind this yet-to-come reality of salvation. Yes, we've been saved, right? We already knew, he told us that, you've been born again by the imperishable seed of the word of God. So there is a sense in which we are new, we've been made new, we've been saved. There's another sense in which salvation is yet to come. The full flowering of salvation is yet to be experienced. And what he's saying here is that as we feed on the milk of the goodness of God and his word, we grow into or toward salvation, right? We arrive at this future eternal salvation. In another sense, I think the phrase growing up into salvation could be seen as just a summary of Christian maturity. Growing up into salvation is a way to express the experience of a Christian as he grows in godliness, in holiness, in love, right? In the immediate context here, of course, being about love, I think it implies a full flowering of Christian love and care. In other words, if you want to grow into the sort of love that you're called to have for one another, you will need to keep feeding yourselves on the word. That's the point that he's making. Well, no doubt you've heard pastors and Christian leaders before urging you to read and meditate upon the Bible, championing its importance and its centrality. You're no stranger to annual Bible reading plans, group Bible studies, 
and of course a substantial portion of our Sunday gatherings devoted to expositing and explaining and applying a portion of God's word. I hate to break it to you, but there's no shortcut to spiritual maturity. There's no instant download option. Remember like in the Matrix where they plug Neo in for the first time and he just has this rush of info. They tap him on the shoulder and he opens his eyes and goes, I know Kung Fu. Right? There's no I know Kung Fu option for Christian maturity. There's no get plugged in and bam, I've got it. I am now a fully committed follower of Jesus and I love others well and I'm totally and fully complete. Nope, there is no option like that. Just as an infant has to grow through multiple stages of human development, mentally, physically, emotionally, so Christian growth occurs in measured steps throughout the course of our lives. And the rate of our growth and the progress of our growth into salvation depends upon the regularity and seriousness with which we nourish our minds and hearts upon God's word. It is that simple. Simple doesn't mean easy. This is the means that God has given us to grow. This is the means that God has given us, the food he's given us to nourish our souls, to starve sin, and to cultivate capacities for love and joy and goodness and truth. It's the word of God. If you intend to grow up in your Christian faith, you need the Word of God. Tom Schreiner says, The means by which God sanctifies believers is through the mind, through the continued proclamation of the Word. Spiritual growth is not primarily mystical, but rational, and rational in the sense that it is informed and sustained by God's Word. So we're not talking about here just growing in some subjective sense of spirituality. We're talking about growing in our understanding of the truth of God and his word, of growing in our recognition of what is true, of growing in our own willingness to yield, to submit ourselves to his word. When he shows me something there and it doesn't match up with what's in my mind or in my heart, it's not a problem with God's word. It's a problem with my heart or with my mind. We need to submit ourselves to it to the extent that we devote ourselves to the Word of God in our own private lives and in the community of the church, through group studies, through getting coffee together and talking about what God's showing us in the Word, through any number of ways that we can allow God's Word into our hearts, to the extent that we devote ourselves to God's Word, He will give growth. So if you're in a stuck place, If you're wondering if there's any way that God could ever help you grow in a particular way or in a battle against a particular sin or in cultivating a particular habit or discipline, this is the way that it's done. There is real hope here. God will give growth. God will build you up, but he does it through the means of his word. And there's no other way. There's no other shortcut here. Christian, you need God's word to grow. And if you will devote yourself as an individual, and if we as a church will devote ourselves as a community to the reading, instruction, meditation, and encouragement of God's word, I have the very same confidence as Peter that you will, day by day, bit by bit, grow up into salvation.
Look at verse 3. If, that is, the statement in verse 3 is true. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now the conditionality of this phrase, that if this is true, then you will grow, right? If you have tasted, then you'll grow up in salvation. I don't think it's intended by Peter to sow doubt in true believers. I don't think we should always be second-guessing Am I in the faith? Am I not in the faith? Am I a Christian? Am I not a Christian? Did God save me? Did God not save me? I don't think he's intending for us to just be sort of always worried that maybe I'm not really saved. But it should cause us to evaluate ourselves. It should give us the opportunity to ask the question, have I indeed tasted the goodness of God in the gospel? Am I, as Paul would say it elsewhere, am I truly in the faith? Now, I like to think that Peter wrote this verse knowing that preachers would be uh, explaining this very passage to their congregations in years to come, and they would need a strong handle to put a gospel invitation on. And so he put this conditional phrase at the end of this verse. So I've got to ask the question, have you tasted that the Lord is good? Have you heard the glorious good news that God, in his love for you, provided the means of forgiveness and acceptance with him through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus? Have you turned to him in faith, admitting your sin and inviting the blood of Jesus to cover your unrighteousness? If you haven't done that, it isn't too late because by God's grace, you are within hearing of the gospel message even now. If you will turn to him in faith, if you will come to him and simply say, I know I'm a sinner and I need the grace and forgiveness and mercy that flows through the cross of Jesus Christ to give me new life. This could be the day that you are born again by the eternal seed of the word of God and begin that lifelong journey of being fed by the milk of God's word growing up into salvation. If that's true of you, don't leave without talking to somebody about that. Talk to me, talk to another one of our church members.